I have a special prayer for tonight, uh, it being the 100th anniversary today of the death of Blessed Karl of Austria. He died in exile on April 1st on the island of Madeira, uh, having been expelled from Austria and then also Hungary. Um, he was emperor and king of both. So uh, this is a prayer that I put in last week's bulletin that is requesting that uh, he be canonized, of course. Um, that also involves getting another miracle. Wouldn't it be great if we had a miracle here? <laughs> you have to ask. You have to ask. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Almighty God, who from all eternity didst predestined thy servant Carl to the high office of king and father of many people, grant, we beseech thee, that he who faithfully walked the royal road of the Holy Cross in patient submission to thy will may soon be accorded the honor of being canonized. Give us the grace that enables us by the example of his, his virtues to form our hearts more and more according to the holiest heart of your beloved Son. This we fervently pray for through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with thee in the unity of the Holy Spirit from eternity to eternity. Amen. 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 In our days of utter materialism, of utter indifference towards religion in the public sphere, of breakdown of family life, of mass divorces, of spiritual neglect, of children, of failing spirit of sacrifice, of constant threats to peace. We need a powerful intercessor who, during his life, showed a wonderful example of virtues and the spirit we so much need. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And please know that uh, we will be putting a shrine uh, to Blessed Carl. And I um, will be able to post now the final rendition of the shrine. We just got permission today from the Archdiocese to spend the required money. Uh, but the money has not all been raised, so of course, if you feel so moved, you can help. Um, but we'll get that final drawing. The other drawings were put in, the other renderings were put into the January 21st, uh, or the uh, patronal, feast, pa uh, patronal Feast of St. Agnes. Well, it's my pleasure to introduce to you tonight Dr. Mary Riker. She is a professor emerita at the University of St. Thomas, having taught in the English and Catholic Studies departments for 33 years. In her time at St. Thomas, she also oversaw the Center of Faculty Development. Dr. Riker is a literary critic and has published 14 books, including four volumes on Catholic literature, as well as edited several critical edition volumes for Ignatius Press. She received her PhD in literature from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Dr. Reichert has been a frequent, frequently sought after speaker on the topics of literature, poetry, Flannery O'Connor, and especially Dante's Divine Comedy. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Reichert as she offers our fifth lecture, Dante's Purgatorio, The Seven-Story Mountain. So if you've made it this far, you're doing very well with Dante. Thank you all for coming. I'm very pleased to be here to talk about, of course, one of my favorite works. I am going to be reading to you a little bit this evening. Part of my hope is to get you seeing, if you haven't seen in the last five or six lectures, that Dante really is not impossible to read, and you should be reading him. So I am going to be reading from Mark Muse's text. You can certainly come up afterwards and look at this volume if you want. It's my favorite. It's called The Portable Dante. It's a very readable and very accurate translation. It's the one I always use with beginning students in Dante. So I do recommend this. And again, I think you'll see um, just how, what a nice text it is, how easy it is to understand. So I know that my colleague, Dr. Mark Spencer, spoke to you last week about that curious area at the beginning of purgatory known as anti-purgatory. 
And also, he spoke to you about that equally curious area at the very top of purgatory called earthly paradise or Garden of Eden. Anti-purgatory is where the souls who have put off repentance in their lives must wait to even begin the purgatorial journey. Led by Virgil, Dante spends quite a bit of time there, turning, one might say, in circles as he searches for the narrow opening that will start his climb to freedom. And freedom is what purgatory is all about. As Virgil and Dante emerge from hell and arrive at the base of the mountain of purgatory, the very first person they encounter is Cato, a marvelous figure who represents freedom of the will. They witness a boat arriving full of souls singing the song of liberation. Then the earthly paradise at the very top of purgatory is only entered once Dante's will is upright, wholesome, and free. As Virgil states when he crowns and mitres Dante in Canto 27. So I am here to speak to you this evening about what happens in between those two bookends to complete Dante's climb to freedom, climbing the seven-story mountain. So this is not a place to delve into a full theology of purgatory. Dante, the author, assumes his readers know it and believe it. And as always, we remember that Dante is not writing theology, but he's writing imaginative fiction. Nevertheless, he grounds his work in solid theology. So let's consider first a couple of matters that will help us understand what Dante is up to in his imaginative structure of purgatory. We know that there are two aspects to sin, the guilty act itself and the underlying tendency towards sin. Once we confess the guilty act in confession and we're absolved, we still need to purge that deep tendency towards sin. The penance we receive in the sacrament of confession is a start, but it's only a start to our lifelong need for purgation of the heart. Those who don't do enough penance on earth, where we're supposed to do it, will have to do it in purgatory, because only those cleansed of all trace of sin can enter the realm of the all-pure God. So the middle seven areas of Dante's purgatory are ledges that wind around a mountain. I can show you a next slide. That's actually in, in Italian, so don't strain your eyes to look at the words. <laughs> but it gives a, a fairly better sense of what these ledges look like. So the middle seven areas are ledges that wind around the mountain. Dante took his structure of this area of purgatory from the teaching of Pope St. Gregory the Great, whose dates are 504 to 590, excuse me, to 604. Pope Gregory gave the classic formation, formulation of the seven deadly sins and also their arrangement in terms of gravity, pride, envy, anger, sloth, avarice, gluttony, and lust. As all of these seven deep tendencies towards sin are in us as a consequence of original sin, Dante shows that every person who attains purgatory has to proceed through each of the seven ledges. That is, they all have to climb the entire mountain. But souls linger on those particular ledges where they have most need of cleansing. On each of the seven ledges, the souls undergo some type of suffering, a contrapasso appropriate to the sin. And I hope you've encountered that word before. You should have, because Dante's entire kind of imaginative structure of inferno um, deals with contrapasso. That is, the punishment fits the crime. And he carries that kind of principle over to purgatory. So the souls are on each of the ledge, they're enduring some kind of suffering, and that suffering is necessary to heal the deep wound of that sin, and thus restore to the soul a perfect freedom of will, preparing them then to re-enter the Garden of Eden, 
or the earthly paradise, as some translations call it, at the top of purgatory. Souls bear their suffering with patience and hope. They know that once the wound of deadly sin is healed, they will be lighter, freer, and they can move more easily upwards. The one thing that can help them make great strides is prayer from those on earth. Now, some fabulous things happen in purgatory. The atmosphere here is, for example, completely different than Inferno. Here, the pace is much slower. Inferno, as you may recall, is frenetic. It's crazy. It's fast. Here, the pace is much slower. It's a lot of time for prayer and meditation. Thus, in Purgatorio Cantos 16, 17, and 18, Cantos that are dead center to the comedy as a whole, and Dante as a medieval thinker was very much into symmetry. Virgil, along with a soul named Marco Lombardi, has the leisure to lay out for Dante the principles on which the entire afterlife is based. Free will, human error, the importance of good governance, and the nature of love. Any student of Dante really needs to study these three central cantos of purgatory carefully. At this point in the journey, Dante can absorb such heady stuff. And the entire journey for Dante is, of course, one of increasing enlightenment, preparing him step by step for the great adventure in light, which will be heaven. And I have a handout for you, but I'm not seeing the handout. Mia culpa? <laughs> Do you think you can give it to these sweet people next week? Okay. I sent him a handout, and he's, he is purging his pride over there. <laughs> so at this point, I was going to ask you to turn to look at the handout, and the handout talks about Cantos 16, 17, and 18, which I am not discussing this evening, but that's why I gave you the handout on them. <laughs> so next week, if you choose, and again, you really should read Cantos 16, 17, and 18. Again, just want to mention it's dead center to the Divine Comedy that we get the whole principle of everything. So look for that handout next week. So my focus this evening, rather, is to take you through just a few representative cantos early in the seven ledges to illustrate how Dante shows us this process of purgation. And I'm also going to be emphasizing some of the practical applications we can draw from them. And then once you get that handout, you'll be able more easily to extrapolate into the ledges we don't have time to do this evening. So I'll be working mainly, if you have your Dante with you, I don't know if anyone does, into cantos about 9 through 15 this evening. So it's really quite striking that after a full eight cantos in purgatory, Dante finally arrives at the actual gate of purgatory proper. That's why I kind of like this slide, Italian even though it is. You see all of this stuff down here in the long, arduous, winding road, and then the seven circles begin. So Dante spends all that time in anti-purgatory until he finally reaches, and if your eyes are pretty good, there's a gate starting to enter those ledges. That's where we are mentally right now. And Dante and Virgil can't even get to that gate on their own. Something more is needed here. And you may recall, I hope, that Virgil represents many things to us, but one of the prime things is human reason. And human reason can only take us very um, so far in the spiritual life. Eventually, the closer we get to God, the more God's grace needs to come down and meet us. And so in Canto 9, at dawn, we find that Santa Lucia, Saint Lucy, Dante's patron saint, who we saw way back at the very beginning of Inferno, comes and swoops picks Dante up and swoops him up to the gate of purgatory proper. So here's a nice illustration. William Blake, the great poet, um, did a lot of 
illustrations of Dante. They're worth taking a look at. And the actual entrance through the gate is highly dramatic. In fact, it's an image of the sacrament of confession. And this is going to be a, a lot darker for most of you to see, but another great illustrator of Dante is uh, Gustave Doré. You may have your, or buy yourself a nice illustrated Dante with Doré's pictures. Again, they're, they, they're pen and ink, so they're, or pencil and ink, so they're often um, a little bit vague looking to you all out there right now. But I'm going to read you now the entrance to the gates. Again, highly dramatic, a symbol of the sacrament of confession. Close to the top, we reached a point from where I saw a gate. It first appeared to be merely a gap, a break within the wall. And leading up to it, there were three steps, each one a different color. And I saw the silent figure of someone on guard. We reached the steps. White marble was the first and polished to the glaze of a looking glass. I saw myself reflected as I was. The second one was deeper dark than purse, of rough and crumbling fire-corroded stone with cracks across its surface, length and breadth. The third one, lying heavy at the top, appeared to be a flaming porphyry, red as the blood that spurts out from a vein. Upon this step, the angel of the Lord rested his feet. He sat upon the sill, which seemed to be made of adamantine rock. Up the three steps, my master guided me benevolently, saying, Ask him now, in all humility, to turn the key. Falling devoutly at his feet, in mercy's name, I begged to be let in. But first of all, three times I smote my breast. Then with his sword, he traced upon my brow the scars of seven peas. Once entered here, be sure you cleanse away these wounds, he said. Ashes on earth, when it is dug up dry, this was the color of the robes he wore. He reached beneath them and drew out two keys. One key was silver and the other gold. First he applied the white one, then the yellow, with that, the gate responded to my wish. Whenever either one of these two keys fails to turn properly inside the lock, the angel said, the road ahead stays closed. One is more precious, but the other needs wisdom and skill before it will unlock, for it is that one that unties the knot. I hold these keys from Peter, who advised, admit too many rather than too few, if they but cast themselves at your feet. Then pushing back the portal's holy door, enter, he said to us, but first be warned, to look back means to go back out again. So what can we make of all this? Quite a bit happening here. Let's uh, go through it. Dante first sees three steps. We can imagine he's climbing them on his knees. And these are really three elements necessary for confession. White for self-knowledge is the first step. Dante calls it a mirror. I saw myself reflected as I was. Black is the second step. We might say that's black for sorrow for sin. And then the third step, red for penitence. It's also described as blood. So we might also say it's the blood of God's mercy. The angel is sitting on a sill made of rock. We can think of the rock of, rock of Peter, the rock of the church. There's a great need for humility, of course. Ask him in all humility, says Virgil. And dropping to his knees, if he's not there already, Dante beats his breast in a gesture we're so familiar with, mia culpa. Then the angel traces seven Ps on his forehead. We're familiar with the word peccata as well, which means sin. He must cleanse those seven sins, those seven deadly sins off of him. The angel's garb is described as the color of ashes. We're familiar with ashes beginning the penitential season. And then finally, the angel produces two keys. I wonder if you ever thought that Jesus gives 
Peter, the keys, plural, to the kingdom of heaven. And the angel has a good explanation. Why two keys? Well, the angel says, one is more precious, but the other needs wisdom and skill before it will unlock. And the two keys, the one that needs wisdom and skill is the priest's power through his, uh, through his ordination, through holy orders, to loose or not loose sins in the confessional. That's the silver key that needs wisdom and skill. But then it's God's ratifying of that decision of the priest, which is the more precious key, the gold key. Both are necessary, says the angel to Dante. So Dante has managed to get in. And now I'd like to tell you a little bit. Actually, I'm going to back up so you can't see that slide yet. But I'll get back there. Now as we move through each of the deadly sins on each of the ledges, we encounter a kind of liturgical pattern of events. Each ledge of a deadly sin is associated with a corresponding virtue, with a beatitude from the Sermon on the Mount, and with a particular prayer suitable to the sin being purged there. And next week when you get your handout, you'll see all that on the handout. Moreover, we also find on each ledge what Virgil calls whips and curbs. So let me explain those. Both of them are necessary for our penance. Whips are positive examples of those people outstanding in the virtue of the ledge. So you can think about whipping a horse to make it go forward. So they're positive examples of and getting us moved forward into that particular virtue. Curbs, by contrast, are negative examples. We might call them cautionary tales of those who persisted in that deadly sin to their downfall. And on every ledge, the first whip or positive example comes from the life of the Virgin Mary, she who was perfect in virtue. So Mary is all over purgatory. And of course, you will see her in paradise. I'm not giving too much away by saying that. So in his images, Dante, on each of the seven ledges, gives us real spiritual principles, practical measures to root out sin and put on virtue. And I'm going to return to this point to summarize it after we've really delved into these cantos and looked at these things happening. I want to say this first before we now begin to take a, an in-depth look at the ledge of pride, the very first one. As we enter that ledge of pride, it's here we begin to see another great passion of Dante the author. We have seen and continue to see in the comedy Dante the politician, Dante the theologian, Dante the spiritual guide. But here we start to see Dante the artist. Purgatory, in fact, turns out to be full of artists painters, musicians, poets, and the like. We'll meet one shortly. Quite a number of them are here in this realm of pride, but you'll also see many others in the realm of gluttony and lust. Dante simply suggests those three capital sins or deadly sins tend to be those endemic to artists. Any artists here? You can confirm it. <laughs> As an artist himself concerned with art, Dante must have reflected a lot on the role of art in God's world. When done for the glory of God, art is clearly something that can help us lead, to help to lead us to God, even helping us in our ongoing work of purgation, just as we're doing this evening, reading a work of art during Lent. So we're about to come to lots of great manifestations of art. So Dante and Virgil now enter the ledge of pride in Canto 10. This deadly sin is first, of course, because pride underlies all sin. And as he looks around, Dante sees a wall with extremely lifelike sculptures in the white marble. These carvings, we find out, were created by God they are God's art, 
and they are the whips or positive examples of this ledge. So I'm going to read you now about the whips or these positive examples. You can picture Dante narrowly coming out on this ledge. Remember, they're just ledges. It's easy to fall off, as Virgil tells Dante consistently. Be careful where you walk. Easy to fall off, so ledges, but on the stone face of the mountain going around, huge carvings made by God. Um, and they're, again, they're the whips. So let's, let's read through those, and then I'll discuss them with you. And standing there, before we took a step, I realized that all the inner cliff, which rising sheer offered no means to climb, was pure white marble. On its flawless face were carvings that would surely put to shame not only polyclete, but nature too. The angel who came down to announce on earth the peace longed for by weeping centuries, which broke the ancient ban and opened heaven, appeared before our eyes, a shape alive, carved in an attitude of marble grace, an effigy that could have spoken words. One would have sworn that he was saying Ave, for she who turned the key opening for us the highest love was also pictured there. The outlines of her image carved the words, I am the handmaid of the Lord, as clearly cut as is the imprint of a seal on wax. Another story cut into the stone. Crossing in front of Virgil, I drew near so that my eyes could take it all in. Carved in the spread of marble there, I saw the cart and ox with the holy ark. Ahead and far beyond the sacred ark, his robes girt up, the humble psalmist danced, showing himself both more and less than king. Depicted on the other side was Michal, as from a palace window she looked on, her face revealed her sadness and her scorn. I moved away from that place to observe at closer range another story told in whiteness just beyond the face of Michal. Here was retold the magnanimity of that great prince of Rome whose excellence moved Gregory to win his greatest fight. Here rode that noble Trajan, emperor, and clinging to his bridle as she wept, a wretched widow carved in lines of grief. That poor widow amid the mass of shapes seemed to be saying, Lord, avenge my son who has been killed. My heart is cut with grief. He seemed to answer, you will have to wait for my return. And she, like one impelled by frantic grief, but oh my Lord, if you should not return. Then he, take comfort, for I see I must do my duty now before I leave. Justice so wills and pity holds me here. So let's talk about these three whips. Quite beautiful, I think. All of these, of course, as whips, positive examples of the virtue of this ledge of pride are representations of humility. Typical Dante, one each from the Old and New Testaments and one from classical antiquity. So the first one, as we saw, the Virgin Mary in the Annunciation, what could typify humility more? Virgin Mary is always the first whip on every ledge. Secondly, and I just love this story. If you've not read it in Samuel, you really should. David girding up his robe and dancing before the Ark of the Covenant as it's brought into town. And you probably can't see well, but up in the uh, right-hand corner there is his wife, Michal, looking on him with scorn and pity. It's a great scene in the Bible. But Dante liked this a lot um, because David was a king but also a poet like Dante, and yet he shows himself, as Dante says, uh, more than a king here because of his humility. And then the third example from classical antiquity, the Roman emperor Trajan. Trajan died in 117 AD. According to a very old story, despite his exalted status as emperor, 
He answered the plea of a humble widow when she asked him to, uh, for justice to avenge her son's death. So Dante has explained that really well, I think. And I thought, just for fun, um, because Dante is fun, believe it or not, I'd like to um, give you a little bit of a detail on a line I read that may sound really opaque to you right now. I read these lines about Trajan. Here was retold the magnanimity of that great prince of Rome whose excellence moved Gregory to win his greatest fight. So what can that possibly mean? Well, I think you'll like this. I like it. Dante liked it. There's a very old story that, so Pope Gregory the Great used to walk around Rome. There's his dates, meditating, I suppose. And he'd come to the Roman Forum, and he'd see Trajan's Column. Anybody see Trajan's Column in Rome? It's still there. And it looks just like that. It's simply gorgeous. I used to sit some nice benches in a park right in front of it. I used to sit there and meditate, too, on this story. So Pope Gregory in the year 500, 590, 5, 6, whenever. <laughs> Those dates aren't, aren't right for... Pope St. Gregory, right? He was only like 10 years old. I have to fix those. I have to fix those dates, but he's around that time. Sorry about that. First time I've noticed that. Pope Gregory used to uh, see Trajan's column, and he, you know, Trajan was a pagan, right? 400 years dead before um, Pope Gregory the Great, but Gregory thought that column was gorgeous. And he prayed for Trajan. And the story goes that he prayed Trajan out of hell. So think about that one, you Catholics out there. He prayed Trajan out of hell. That's the ancient story. Dante loved that because paradise is going to be full of surprises. And one of the people you're going to meet there is Trajan. Trajan the pagan. So hold on to that for paradise. But I like this. So as he stands there admiring this art, Dante suddenly sees slow-moving souls bent over, carrying huge burdens on their backs. I've got a couple of illustrations here from ancient man manuscripts of the Divine Comedy. And here they are. Uh, Dante sees in the distance People completely bent over, carrying stones, heavy rocks on their back. And we, and we can ask, why this contrapasso? Well, we might say that, of course, pride is a huge burden. Punishment fits the crime. When we try to be more than we actually are, when we uphold a heavy burden of lies and hypocrisy, it bends us over in many ways. And that's the suffering of these souls on this ledge. So let me read a little bit about how Dante now sees these souls coming toward him. Master, what I see moving toward us there, I said, do not seem to be shades at all. I don't know what they are. My sight's confused. The grievous nature of their punishment, he answered, bends their bodies toward the ground. My own eyes were not sure of what they saw. Sometimes one sees a corbel holding the weight of roof or ceiling carved in human shape with chest pressed tightly down against its knees so that this unreality gives real anguish to one who sees it. This is how these souls appeared and how they made me feel. True, some of them were more compressed, some less, as more or less weight pressed on each one's back, but even the most patient of them all seemed through his tears to say, I can't go on. So a couple things happening there. Dante can't believe his eyes. He said the first people now he's seeing coming toward him, doing their, their, uh, performing their suffering. And he compares them to corbels. And if you've ever seen a, a medieval corbel, when you go to Europe, you often see these kind of humorous little, oh, the handout's coming. Someone, someone did penance for his sin back there. 
here's a nice little medieval corbel, and it's just kind of neat to think that you can go to Europe now in places and still see the same corbels that Dante was seeing. Sometimes they're just cornerstones, and that's what Dante is seeing. But I want to point out as well that last line that I read. Um, Dante hears the souls say, I can't go on. I mean, the suffering really is quite real on these ledges. We can put ourselves in those positions. So now, the bent-over souls recite a version of the Our Father as we start Canto 11. Remember, I mentioned to you that in each ledge, there's going to be an appropriate prayer for the particular sin being purged. And I think there is no better prayer than our foundational prayer of the Our Father for humility. Of course, it begins with just those first two words. That's really all we need, Our Father puts us in that position. And now Dante singles out three particular types of pride in the people he begins to talk to on this ledge. So I'm going to work through these three very interesting people with you that he speaks with. The three types of pride that Dante probably knew himself, I think he does because he, he will be doing his own purgation, pride of family heritage, pride of artistic talent, and pride of political power. So I want to talk to you first of all about Umberto, the very first person that he talks to, who represents for us pride of family heritage. Umberto in English is Hubert. It always sounds better in Italian. I don't know why. And Umberto was a real person. In fact, all three of these people are real people. You know that Dante often uses real people. Umberto was a Ghibelline of Siena. He tells us he hurt his city and his family through his pride. So let me read his story. Dante says, who were you? Here's his answer. I was Italian, born of a great Tuscan. Perhaps you never heard the name before. My ancient lineage, the gallant deeds of my forebears had made me arrogant, forgetful of our common mother earth. I held all men in such superb disdain, I died for it, as all of Siena knows. I am Umberto, and the sin of pride has ruined not only me, but all of my house, dragging them with it to calamity. This weight, which I refused while I still lived, I am now forced to bear among the dead until the day that God is satisfied. So one of the hallmarks of the people in purgatory is they have been through that white stare. They all have self-knowledge. They all know exactly what they did. And they're, in fact, eager to confess it or eager to say it. Their sin is up front. They're purging it. They want to get it done. Nothing is hidden. Nothing is subterfuge the way everything in Inferno is. Everybody's lying to you, you know, in Inferno. Uh, but no one is in purgatory. Um, so when Umberto says, you know, my sin ruined my whole household and so forth, it's really an act of humility and self-knowledge. And I always like to think about this because Dante also works in a lot of contrasts. I wonder if any of you or perhaps whoever gave the lecture on Inferno 10, any of you uh, remember Farinata? Because I don't see any nods. Well, I'll tell you about Farinata. You should remember him. He's back in Canto 10 of Inferno. He's one of the most famous people in Inferno. He's in the realm of the heretics in a burning tomb. So he's being burnt alive for all eternity in a tomb. Dante approaches him to talk to him. Dante is always fearful. as he, Dante faints three times in Inferno, by the way. Um, but he approaches Farinata. Farinata rises from his burning tomb. And snobbishly, the first thing Farinata says to Dante is, and who would your ancestors be? So with Umberto here, we have a complete contrast. And you're, you're always looking for contrast. Dante, again, is all about symmetry. There's all sorts of contrast going on. So our next example is an artist named Odorisi. And this is representative of pride of talent, pride of artistic talent. Odorisi tells us, as we'll read in just a minute, 
that he, a real person again, um, he was an artist on earth in that new and very cool art of manuscript illumination. Whoa. Which is the up and coming art. And he's from Jubio. So let me read his story. This is Dante right after speaking with Umberto. I had, my, I had my head bent low to hear his words, and someone, not the one who just spoke just now, twisted around beneath his punishment, saw my face, knew me, and called out, straining to keep his eyes on me as I moved with these souls, keeping my body bent. Significant that Dante, in um, most of these ledges, reenacts the punishment of the people there, he too is going through these purgations. His body is bent, and he needs that too to talk to people, because they're all bent. Oh, I said, you must be that Odorisi, honor of Jubio, honor of the art which men in Paris call illuminating. Ah, the pages Franco Bolognese paints, he said, my brother, smile more radiantly. His is the honor now, mine is far less. Less courteous would I have been to him, I must admit, while I was still alive, and my desire was only to excel. For pride like that, the price is paid up here. I would not even be here were it not that while I still could sin, I turned to God. Once Chimabue thought to hold the field as painter, Giotto is now all the rage, dimming the luster of the other's fame. So one Guido takes from the other one poetic glory, and already born, perhaps, is he who'll drive both from fame's nest. Your earthly fame is but a gust of wind that blows about, shifting this way and that. So with Odorisi, we see a number of things. For one thing, he immediately gives praise to another artist. He says, the pages Franco Bolognese paints now smile more radiantly. Less courteous, he said, would I have been to him when I was on earth? Now, that's really hard. That's humility for an artist to praise another artist. And then he gives us a little diatribe on pride, right? As many of these um, do. And I, I love what he says. He says, once Chimabue thought to hold the field as painter Giotto is now all the rage. So one Guido takes from the other one. And Guido there is Joe Schmo. So one Joe Schmo is famous up one day and down the next day. And you may know the artist Chimabue, but Giotto was a personal friend of Dante's. So I thought I'd put Giotto up here. In fact, Giotto drew one of the earliest pictures we have of Dante from life. And then lastly, the third and, again, a real person Dante speaks to is Provenzan Salvani. So let me tell you about him. He illustrates for us pride of political power. He was a Ghibelline chieftain. So this is Odorisi now pointing out Provenzan Salvani. You see that soul ahead crawling along? All Tuscany resounded with his name. Now hardly it is whispered in Siena, where once he once ruled, and managed to destroy the mad attack of Florence, once so proud, but now become as vino as a whore. And I said to him, your words of truth have humbled my heart. They have reduced my swollen pride. But who is he you spoke about just now? That's Provenzan Salvani, he said. And he is here because presumptuously he sought to gain control of all Siena. And I, if it is true that any soul who has delayed repentance till the last must wait down there before he can ascend, the same amount of time he lived on earth unless he's helped by efficacious prayer, then how has he arrived so fast up here? He said, while at the apex of his glory, in Siena's marketplace, of his free will, putting aside all shame, he took his stand and there to ransom from his suffering a friend who was immured in Charles's jail, he brought himself to do what chilled his veins. So that's fairly opaque. 
Much of Dante is opaque because all his readers knew this stuff. But I'd like to explain that because it's a nice little reference. Um, and I'll turn to a picture here. You know, so much of Dante over the centuries has been illustrated. This is an artist named Casoli. But I'll tell you uh, what this story is. So Dante asks Odorisi, how did Silvani get up here so fast? This guy who was so proud of his political power. And the answer is that at a, in at least one point of Silvani's life, he enacted humility. He did an act of humility. He became a beggar on the streets of Siena in order to bail a friend out of jail. And so here's the painting of Salvani uh, humbling himself in, in Siena's marketplace. You can buy this painting if you'd like it to hang in your room. It's a good one for humility. And I love that last line that Dante, uh, that Odorisi says to us, he brought himself to do what chilled his veins. <laughs> you know, this guy, this, it chilled his veins to do this act of humility, but he did it. Hence, here he is in purgatory proper without waiting for hundreds of years below. Where is he in that painting? Uh, yeah, he's, it's very hard to see. I know he's at very kind of center. It's a busy painting like so many of those are, so sorry about that. So as Dante finishes speaking with these three types of illustrations of pride and participating himself in their purgation, he now finds himself changed. He's full of humble thoughts and much, much lighter. And now Virgil points out to him the curbs or negative examples of this ledge. Looking down, Virgil directs his eyes downward now because he's been looking at the sculptures on the walls and then he's been talking to people. Now he looks down at the ground. He sees other carvings. These sculptures too, divinely created, show the consequences of persisting in the sin of pride. So the curbs are there as well. So as the souls make their way with their heavy burdens around the ledge, they are looking down, meditating on the curbs, as well as craning their necks, I suppose, to look at the sculptures too, over and over and over. So what does Dante see in these curbs? Well, he sees Satan, first of all. That makes sense. And then the list continues with figures from the Old Testament, classical mythology, and also from history, he sees Briarius, he sees Nimrod, you met those two in hell, very top of hell. He even sees a whole city portrayed, the city of Troy. And these carvings, Dante tells us, reminds him of tombs in church floors. So I always like these things that we can still see today. And this is the basilica that Dante knew well in his hometown of Florence. And if you've been to Europe or much older cathedrals and churches in Europe, many of the rich and famous in medieval days love to be buried on the floor of the church as an act of humility because people are walking over them all the time. So Dante compares again the sculptures he's seeing, the curbs to tombs built into church floors. And I think, too, we can say that one effective way to maintain humility is to keep remembering our death. I was just up at stations. How many times did we mention death during that? Over and over. And so the, these souls are remembering, again, humbling themselves, bent over in their sufferings again as they make their way. And then with that, Dante is now prepared to leave the ledge of pride and move upwards. So I'll read you the very end of the Ledge of Pride, and then we'll talk about it. So the first thing he sees is a glorious angel coming toward him to point the way. Still closer to us, clothed in white he came, the radiantly fair creature, and his face was shining like a trembling star at dawn. He spread his arms out wide and then his wings. He said, come now, the steps are very close. Henceforth, the climbing will be easier. He led us straight to where the rock was cleft. Once there, he brushed his wings against my brow. Then he assured me of a safe ascent. While we were walking toward those steps, the song, Blessed are the poor in spirit, 
more, rang out more sweetly than ever could be described. As we were climbing up the sacred steps, I seemed to feel myself much lighter now than I had been on level ground. Master, I said, tell me what heavy thing has been removed from me. I feel as if to keep on climbing would be effortless. He answered, when the peas that still remain, though they've almost all faded now on your brow, shall be erased completely like the first, then will your feet be light with good desire. They will no longer feel the heavy road, but will rejoice as they are urged to climb. Then I did something anyone might do, made conscious by the way men looked at him, that he must have something strange on his forehead. His hand will try hard to investigate, feeling around to find, fulfilling thus the duty the eyes cannot perform. So my right hand with fingers spread found just six of the seven letters that were carved upon my brow by him who keeps the keys. Observing this, my master smiled at me. I like that touch. So Dante's like, how many are left? So what do we have here at the end of this ledge? The angel points the way. Angels are our guides all throughout purgatory. A P standing for peccata is taken off his forehead. And interestingly enough, Virgil tells Dante, all the rest have faded. So heavy is the sin of pride. The rest of purgatory, Dante is more or less going to fly through, especially when he gets to those very top. Gluttony, avarice, lust, whew, right through. We don't think of that sometimes that way. That's the formulation of the deadly sins. Then also steps now replace rock climbing. And we, by the way, have learned from Virgil way back early in purgatory that this mountain is not like other mountains because climbing is easier uh, the, the farther up you get. And then Dante hears... The beatitude at the end, blessed are the poor in spirit. And since you have your handout, you might just want to take a look at the page now that shows all the beatitudes and all the ledges. And I'll give you a little shorthand with the different cantos to look at. We're going to move on a little bit, though, because I'm now going to work with you in our second ledge, the ledge of envy. So that ledge of pride was quite elaborate. Pride is a big hurdle to get over. Now things move more quickly. As with the visuals of the sculptures on the first ledge, as we now enter that ledge of envy, we have auditory whips and curbs. That is, Dante and Virgil hear voices stating them. And the whips are positive examples of generosity. The first one is Mary at Cana. The second is Orestes and Pilates from classical mythology, two men famous for their generosity to each other. And the third whip is love those who do no harm. So again, all these in the second ledge come through the ears. They're not sculptures. And every ledge will be creative and different. So Dante now sees all the souls purging envy. Again, Dory is pretty dark. I'm sorry for that. And how does he see them? Well, they're all sitting in a big huddle with their heads on each other's shoulders because their eyes are sewn shut. And Dante compares their sewn shut eyes to those of falcons. In his day, falconry was a big sport. And one would sew the eyes of falcons closed to make them totally dependent on their trainer. Why this contrapasso? Well, envy comes through the eyes. And so now, sewn up, they must depend on each other the way when they were envying each other, they kept at a distance and judged each other. And Dante finds out their appropriate prayer for this ledge is the litany of the saints, which also is a prayer of generosity, giving generously praise to others. So Dante meets here a person named Sapia, and I like Sapia very much, so I'm going to read the story of Sapia to you. 
She's the major person he meets on the ledge of envy. This is in Canto 13. And Dante first says to her, O soul, learning to dominate yourself for the ascent, it was you who spoke. Tell me your name or where you lived. She said, I was a Sienese here with the rest. I mend my evil life with tears and beg of him that he reveal himself to us. Though named Sapia, Sapient I was not. I always reveled in another's grief, enjoying that more than my own welfare. If you do not believe me, listen now, and you will see how far my folly went in the declining arc of my long years. It happened that my townsmen were engaged in battle just outside Kali. I prayed God for what already he had willed. Our men were scattered on the plain and forced to take the bitter course of flight, I watched the chase, seized with a surge of joy so fierce, I raised my shameless face to God and cried, I have lost all my fear of thee. I did not seek my peace with God, not till my final hour came. And even then, penance would not yet have reduced my debt, had it not been for one Pierre Petanio, who, moved by charity to grieve for me, remembered me in his holy prayers. But you, so eager to inquire about us here, you with your eyes unsown, so I would guess, and breathing out your words, who are you? My sight one day shall be sewn up, I said, but not for long. My eyes have seldom sinned in casting envious looks on other folks. It's a far greater fear that shakes my soul, that of the penance done below. Already I feel on me the weight those souls must bear. So a few words about Sapia. She's not, as she tells us, sapient. She has a little play on words there, which is nice. When Sienna went to war, for, for some reason she rejoiced in her kinsman's defeat with an evil fury evil joy. So Dante shows us that envy is not only resentment of others' good fortune, but it can also be positive enjoyment at another's misfortune. How did she get here so fast? Someone prayed for her on earth. Peter the comb seller in the marketplace, probably a beggar, comb seller, who simply saw this woman and prayed for her. Power of prayer, people. And Dante very significant, I think, says to her, my sight one day shall be sewn up, but not for long. I have seldom sinned by envy. It's a far greater sin that I fear, the sin of pride. And again, for Dante to say that, I would maintain that's not pride. That's self-knowledge. To know one's true sins. He fears pride, not so much envy. And finally, Sapia asks for prayers, as most of the souls in purgatory too. When she hears that Dante is a living person, enabled by God to make this wonderful journey, she says, oh, what miracle this is. What evidence of God's great love for you. Yes, help me with a prayer from time to time. And so a little bit of summary now of Canto 14 and 15, as Dante and Virgil prepare to leave the ledge of the envious, they hear the curbs of envy. They come through the ears, too. There's only two, Cain, envious of his brother Abel, and Augularis from classical mythology, a woman who is envious of her sister. They hear the beatitude, blessed are the merciful, and the second P is erased from Dante's forehead. So let's do a summary now as we close. I'd like to emphasize here, now that we've looked at these two ledges in depth, that Dante, the author, in his imaginative story, gives us real and helpful principles that are helpful to us in Lent. Lent is a time to examine ourselves and really know ourselves before God, as Dante does as he approaches that gate, the white step reflecting who he is. So we begin the process of purgation by admitting our sins, bowing down in humility, mea culpa, through confession. Then when we enter on the ongoing road to purgation, we first encounter our deep tendency toward pride. 
How can we practice its opposite? Humility, bowing down in spirit, the way these souls are bowed down. We also begin Lent, of course, with that age-old practice of ashes. Remember, man, that you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Then, to help us in purgation, what can we meditate on that provides us perhaps with whips, positive examples of, of humility, especially, of course, from the life of the Virgin Mary? What great art might we use to do so, literature, music, or painting? What can we meditate on that provides us with curves or negative examples of paths we do not want to follow? And what about an appropriate prayer for our particular sin? For pride, it might be the litany of humility, for example. And then how about envy? How can we mentally sew up our eyes, diverting attention to what really matters, the things of the spirit? How can we strive to practice generosity? What whips and curbs and prayers might we select? So all of these are very practical means of purgation, of rooting out the deadly sins and putting on virtue. This, then, is the exact pattern for all seven ledges. So I'm hoping this evening, as we work through two ledges, you can now pretty easily read the rest. Yes, Dante is endlessly imaginative in the way he lays out things and the people he meets, but look for each of those patterns. Remember, this is a liturgical pattern through these seven ledges. And then finally, many readers over the centuries have noted that Dante's Purgatorio is really an image of our Catholic life on earth. Inferno is a place to acknowledge as a terrible reality, but a place to get out of as soon as possible, as Dante and Virgil go running out of Inferno at the end. Paradise is our goal. But we as humans so often lack the ability, even the ability, to visualize it. We've never yet experienced here on earth perfect joy and peace. It's really hard to imagine heaven. But purgatory, by contrast, is what is completely familiar to us if we are living a sincere Catholic life. Prayer, work, penance, enduring our sufferings in a spirit of joyful hope. So Lent is all about returning to these basics, knowing our sins, confessing them, and devising a practical plan to counter our vices. In his comedy, Dante lays out the road for us. So thank you. Mary can take a few questions, two, maybe three. Just make sure to repeat the question. Yes. More of a comment, just uh, thank sure. you, those wonderful uh, whips. So it occurred to me that we have our own whips, uh, and it saddens me sometimes that we've moved away from that as uh, saints' names for mm -hmm. our lives, Mary. Mm -hmm. And I've tried to get my kids to name their kids Mary. <laughs> they, they have names. Lazarus is one of my grandsons, Ignatius, so I shouldn't really complain. You shouldn't complain. <laughs> those are great whips in our lives that we've moved away from, with, you know, yeah. moving away from yeah. saints' names, Peter, Paul, Mark. And, yeah. Good comment. That's all. Mm -hmm. Yes? Can you say more about how the envy works uh, when the perception is that it's of someone's distress or problems? or you know, Can you say more about how that is? Envy. I have a hard time picturing that as. Yeah, like what Sapia did? Yes. Yeah. Um, so Sapia, and I don't know the full story. Again, she's a real person as well. In fact, she was Provenzan Salvani's aunt. Mm -hmm. Everything's related here, I suppose. But Sapia, for some reason, she took evil joy at the misfortune of her town. And I have felt that, that malady. <laughs> Have you not? <laughs> Am I the only one? I mean, all of these deadly sins are in us, right? Um, you know, somebody has bad fortune, right? And we take a joy that they've met their downfall, finally. It serves you right. Got it? That's it. There's way in the back. 
can you do that again? Any other recommendations? I'm having a hard time hearing, so my translator is up here. Do I have other recommendations for translations? I've mentioned Musa, uh, Anthony Esselin. I see some nods as a really good person, a fairly recent translation. You really want to get yourself a good translation, okay? There's nothing worse than getting a, you know, don't just go to the library and take out a dusty translation from 100 years ago. You will stop reading Dante. Get a good translation. True students of Dante's love a bunch of translations, but start with an easy one, like Musa or Esselin, because they're up to date. This is an American English one. That's why I like it. But then, of course, if you're a student of Dante, have five, six, or seven of them as you're comparing, because you know there's nuances in every one of them. Um, I don't know if you also asked the, asked the question about a resource I brought, just one. My favorite for my students is Robert Royals. It's called Dante Alighieri, Divine Comedy, Divine Spirituality. And it takes you pretty much canto by canto. I know Royal personally, I have some problems with this book, but you won't <laughs> initially. He skips whole cantos that I think are important. But anyway, this is probably the best Catholic resource for, the, for a beginner's divine comedy. Can you say the name again? Yes, it's Robert Royal, R-O-Y-A-L, Dante Alighieri, Divine Comedy, Divine Spirituality. You can come up here and look at it once uh, we all leave, if you choose. I have a daughter I'm naming her Nella, which is a really deep cut into purgatory. I don't remember what canto it is, but uh, I can't remember who's wife, but she prays for him. Can you translate? Nella. Where's Nella? Somebody's wife. Someone's wife named Nella in Inferno? No, Purgatorio. That doesn't ring a bell to me right now. I'm sure she shows up somewhere, but I just can't remember. Let's, let's thank Dr. Reichert again. Oh, I just remembered Nella. I remember Nella. She popped into my head. I'm not sure what canto, but um, someone says to Dante, oh, thank God my wife Nella prayed for me. It's, it's, it's something to do with, other, with prayers of those on earth. And as soon as I leave here, I'll remember what canto it is, but I can't remember. <laughs>